Thank you for listening to Law Talks. Before you listen in to this episode, we wanted to let you know that this is one of our first attempts at creating the podcast. And as a result, it lacks the audio quality and cohesion that the later episodes have. We've kept it unchanged as the content is invaluable and very much worth a listen. We hope you'll stick around and check out and listen in to our more recent episodes too. Hello and welcome to episode 5 of Law Talks. Today we're joined by Justice Katz. Join me as we discuss the path from criminal barrister to high court judge. What made you decide to choose criminal law as a speciality? Well, I came to the law not because um, I was casting around for something to do at university, but I decided when I was nine that I wanted to be a barrister. And I decided that no lawyers in the family. I decided that because there was a programme on TV, which everyone will be too young to remember, called Crown Court. And it was on at lunchtime, so largely I wouldn't see it. But if I was home on the holidays, my mother would have it on and I would watch it. And I was completely fascinated with this whole, I suppose, the drama of it at that stage. But the cross-examination, how how you learnt how people um, interacted with each other on every level. I was completely mesmerised. So it was at that stage that I decided I wanted to be a barrister. And I'd seen it because I'd seen this programme Crown Court. And I thought I might change my mind as I went through school and through um, through university, but I didn't. And my interest has always been in criminal law, how people operate together, interact with each other. I also wanted to be in court a lot. I wanted to be an advocate. And in crime, you are in court a lot. Whereas if you choose some, certainly some civil fields, you'll spend a lot of time out of court. You'll be drafting papers. And in fact, for some people, um, if you're representing big, big companies, the idea is to keep them out of courts because it's quite expensive. But I wanted to be an advocate. I wanted to be in there. I was fascinated by the idea of a jury. Um, and so being able to cross-examine, to present argument. Uh, and I have to say, I've never regretted it. You earn less money than you might in other areas of the law, but I find it fascinating. Thank you very much. Um, so for the next question, we were wondering how long did your journey to being appointed High Court judge take you? I have to confess how old I am really. Um, so, I, <laughs> so I was called to the bar in 1986. I did my first case in the magistrate's court in 1987 when I was at my second six months pupillage because you can't um, stand up on your own in the first six months. And I became a high court judge in 2018. So about 32 years, which when I say it like that, I can't believe it myself. But yes, it's about 32 years. Of course, I was a a circuit judge before that I was a circuit judge in 2011 and I'd sat as a part-time judge as a recorder of the Crown Court um, from 2003 but I think I was quite young to be a High Court judge most High Court judges would be um, a bit older than me possibly even into their 60s. Thank you very much so um Move, sort of similarly to that we were wondering did you when you were a barrister did you always know you wanted to be a judge or was it something that you kind of thought more about if you've got further into your profession? No, I don't think so. Because we, if, if you look at the continental system and indeed in America, then you can have a, um, an ambition to be a judge because you don't have to be a practitioner first. You can just qualify at university and go that route. 
in this country you can't you have to be a practitioner first or i say not really some people are academics but you have to have been working for some considerable time so i'm not saying that nobody would have thought i want to be a, a judge or a high court judge when they start maybe they do but for me it was a question because i i didn't do very well in my a levels um, and from then on, I wasn't quite sure how far I was going to be able to go. So for me, I wanted to be a criminal barrister, full stop. That's what I wanted to do. And I don't think I, th I really thought beyond that because I was never likely to be a judge for about 20 years on. And I think it's not until you're doing it for a bit and then you're seeing it that you might think to yourself, well, would I like to do that? And then the opportunity for me came up to sit as a part-time judge. So... I took that and then I realised I quite liked it. So eventually, when I felt I was at that point in my career that I'd done as much as I really wanted to do as a criminal barrister, I'd been at Queen's Council, I'd done quite a lot of work that, doing that. And I wanted to be a full-time judge and that's why then I applied. So no, but I, I would say that with a lot of people starting out of the criminal law, may, I say maybe some of them do, but I don't think you'd have an idea of being a high court judge. You'd probably think, if you wanted to be a judge, you'd be a circuit judge because it's circuit judges who do most of the judging in the Crown Court. So all of your working life, you would have been doing work in front of largely circuit judges, sometimes a high court judge if it's a very big case, but mostly circuit judges. So criminal advocates don't necessarily think about being high court judges. Whereas if you're a civil barrister, um, you might well have most of your life in the high court. So if they're thinking about being a judge, they probably wouldn't think about being a circuit judge. They'd be thinking about being a high court judge because they're the people they're appearing in front of all the time. But for me personally, I just wanted to be a barrister and do it as well as I could. And then as I went through, I began to see there were other options and, and sort of thought about it at that stage. Did it, was it a very big change going from circuit to high court judge? Yes, it was huge. Um, the reason being that um, I was an exclusively criminal judge that's what I did I tried criminal cases sentenced people who pleaded guilty um, you can't go to the high court and just be a criminal judge because there are three divisions of the crown of the high court there's the family division there's the chancery division um, and then there's the queen's bench division which is really everything else so you are expected to do some of your time in each of the special specialties of the queen's bench division so that's crime yes and the court of appeal criminal division but it's also um, the administrative court, so people who are judicially reviewing um, government decisions, things like that, and also in Queen's Bench Civil, so people who are suing each other for breach of contract or for negligence or whatever it is. So you are required to, to work in those areas as well. Now, I had been an exclusively criminal practitioner and I'd been an exclusively criminal judge. So to go into those disciplines, they were brand new for me and they still are. Now, in fairness to the, the way it's listed, nobody in the High Court is going to give me the most complex case of uh, whether government's being sued for something. I'm not going to be their first choice. There are lots of High Court judges who have that specialty. Mm -hmm. Similarly, I'm currently trying five defendants charged with a, a murder. Well, they're not going to throw somebody in who's never done a criminal trial before. So there is some sort of measure of the way that they list it. But every judge is expected to sit in all the disciplines, except for the commercial court. Uh, for good reason, I think, because if it's big businesses bringing very large cases, you're not going to have someone in who's never done a commercial 
court case in their lives. So you have to be particularly ticketed to go into the commercial court, which it wouldn't be me. I wouldn't do that. And some people who sit in the commercial court actually don't come out and do crime. But largely you have to do more of it. So it's been a huge leap. Um, and equally in, in lifestyle, because when you're a Crown Court judge, you're based in one Crown Court. I was in Reading, so I go backwards and forwards every day from home. Now I'm in London for half of each term and then I'm sent out anywhere in the country. So I'm out on circuit all over the place. So again, it's, it's a very different um, way of judging, but great fun. And it's great to be given the opportunity to do it. You are, so that does sound, I don't really um, fully know the sort of differences between the different judging systems. And that seems like it's a very big change to go on. Which um, is exactly being thrown something that you've never done before in your life is interesting. On the other hand, you take your judging skills with you. You can look up the law. You just have to work very hard. And, and also be prepared to say to people who are appearing in front of you, um, I'm sorry, you're going to have to take me back to first principles. Just do. It's interesting when the bar look at you and think, goodness me, but no, they do. And then sometimes it's no bad thing for them either to go back and think of first principles and to sort of help you work your way through it. Thank you very much. That's very interesting. Um, so for our ne for next question on a slightly different note, what would you say is the most rewarding part of your job? I find that really hard. Is it difficult when you really like doing something as to what the most rewarding part of it is? Um, I think on all sorts of levels, actually, I like you know, when I'm going in and starting a trial, especially when it's a big trial, I suppose criminal trial, which is my speciality, there's always a slight sense of nervousness when a big case starts, that, that those sort of butterflies in your stomach as you go in. And, you know, I could be trying a case as I was in Manchester with nine defendants. I have 20 barristers in front of me. Um, and just the sheer scale of that and how you're going to manage it and how it is going to unfold. Um, I like the, I still like the drama of it, the reason I started in the first place. I really like every single criminal trial or any trial, I suppose, is a story. It's a story unfolding and it's the way people interact with each other. I still quite find sort of fascinating. And you see people living very different lives from your own in all these, these sorts of things. I like, um, I'm there to ensure that people have a fair trial and so I'm sitting there and I'm balancing everything, but also making sure witnesses are not bullied. Uh, they have their chance to give their account and there could be witnesses of all sorts, children, people with vulnerabilities, you know, just, or, and many witnesses who are just not as clever as lots of people. Yeah. So giving them a fair chance to say what they actually want to say. And actually I really do, I mean, I'm getting to the end of my five defendant trial and I have to sum up so I'm now having to draw the whole case together so that I can help the jury in their deliberations. They've, they've heard all the evidence but I've got to direct them on the legal directions which are quite complex in this case and then the evidence and then kind of pull it all so that when they retire I've given them as much help as possible for them to apply the legal principles to the facts as they find them to be and that's quite a challenge. <laughs> but it's interesting and that's why and I think I, the other thing and it's what I find most rewarding, it's lots of things, is that you're moving from case to case to case to case and they're quite self-contained. So if you're having a nightmare of a case and you don't enjoy it, whether you're as a practitioner or as a judge, you're going to move on. It's going to end. You're going to do something, you know, the next one will start. 
And that I think is also quite good too, that you it gives you a chance to, it's quite compartmentalized in that, in that way. I, I loved it every, not every day, obviously, but <laughs> I've loved it. Thank you very much. Um, that's, a, that's such a nice idea as well, that the part that you were so looking forward to from when you were nine years old has actually been fulfilled and is continuing to. Yes. <laughs> um, this is probably particularly topical at the moment, but a lot of people are wondering, is it difficult to switch off um, outside of the office or at the moment when not online um, and take time off? Yeah, it is. But, it, but it's always going to be partially because it's not just a nine to five job. So um, if you think about it as, as being a practitioner, the case will come to you you've got to prepare it you're likely to be preparing it while you're also in court doing another case you're having to um go to see clients in prison or if you're prosecuting um obviously the prosecution authorities and during the trial itself you're having to prepare because the court day will finish at half past four you've got to get home and then there'll be witnesses for tomorrow so you can't just stand up and, and ask, you've got to prepare for it. So, you know, you, you, I'm not saying you're working every single evening, but you're working most evenings or part of most evenings. And certainly as, as I became more senior at the bar, I was working a lot of weekends. It's unusual for me not to work on a Sunday. Um, even now, I simply don't have time to do everything within the court. Because, say, if you're in court, in a civil case, you've got to write a judgment afterwards. Or you've got to be thinking about it um, if you're going to be doing a judgment on the hoof, which for more simple cases you can be. And the same as now, um, through this case, I have been preparing it uh, as we go through. But I've also taken on an additional responsibility this year because I've become what they call a presider of, of a circuit, so uh, for the purposes of, of courts, the country is split administratively. So each circuit is run administratively separately with the senior presiding judge, who's a lady justice of appeal looking over the whole. Um, and high court judges become presiding or can become a presiding judge of a circuit. So I'm on the Western circuit now. So everyone from... Portsmouth, Winchester down to Truro, Gloucester at the top, um, Bristol, that sort of area. And so I'm with a fellow High Court judge overseeing the smooth running of that circuit. So anything that there could be, you know, problems with the performance of a court, how quickly they're getting their cases through, any um, issues with the judges, just everything. So I'm, I'm on top of my court work. I've also got a lot of meetings because I'm meeting with people all the time. But of course, at the moment, mostly as we are now um, over this kind of platform. So there's a, that's an additional workload, which I'm happy to fit in around my court workload, which means it's very busy. <laughs> Weekends are very busy. Morning meetings, evening meetings. It just seems to go on at the moment. So, But I think you know, taking back, rolling that back to someone who's just starting out, Yes, I would expect it's you can be a lawyer and be employed, I think, and just have a nine to five job. But a, but a job like this, where you're going into court each day, involves you having to say something each day and you're going to want to be prepared. You're not going to have to sit up all night, rarely, occasionally, but rarely. Um, but you are going to have to, to prepare. Therefore, your downtime is difficult. What I do try to do is to have one day a week, like Saturday, where I'm not working. 
Um, sometimes I have to, but, but I'm not. And I'm also rigid about taking holidays. You really have to take time off. Otherwise, you're, you just would fall over and that's not good for anybody. So, you know, I think just try to build a holiday or something in, you know, it's a long weekend every three months, something that just keeps you a bit sane is really important. Seems like a, it's a very big balancing act, sort of like self-management. And, um... <laughs> and just, just from what you were saying, I was wondering, talking about the meetings, did you find that transitioning from barrister to judge became a lot more social and you've seen people as because quite a lot of people who we've interviewed who are barristers say it's quite um fairly like lonely work sometimes i think the reverse is true um because when you're a barrister you're traveling yes it's lonely work to the extent that you're you're responsible for your case if you like but you are meeting other people so whenever you get to a court not in this world where we're talking remotely but you know you'd walk into a robing room at any court you'd probably see someone there that you hadn't seen for ages because they're there on a different case um and so you would have a chance to sit down and have a cup of coffee and a real chat or certainly being a member of chambers i know that's different now because people can work remotely but chambers used to be you could go in and there'd be somebody around who you could ask their view if there was a legal problem that was worrying you or whatever um, and have a bit of a chat whereas being a judge isn't like that you're not part of a chambers anymore and being a high court judge in particular you're not attached to a particular court anymore except the royal courts of justice and then because all the high court judges and royal courts of justice are spending half the term in london half the term out you never know who's going to be in who's going to be out at any given time so it's not like we're all together you know it's it, it's your usual workplace you will see people all the time that you know this is very different we're moving around the country we're meeting people, of course, but it's, it is, I, I think, more isolating in a way. And that's one of the things people find difficult in the move from the bar to the bench mm -hmm. is how suddenly you, you really are sort of on your own. That said, you know, if you're sitting in a crown court, social distancing differently, um, there are judges' dining rooms. You know, once you're a judge, if you're a circuit judge, like at Reading, there were uh, seven judges there we would all get together at lunch we'd talk to each other we could wander into each other's rooms in the morning and have a cup of coffee particularly for me as i was the senior judge there to see if everybody was okay yeah. but also that you could um just say oh, i've got a real problem i'm, I'm thinking of set giving this sentence to this defendant do you think i'm too soft or too high is it about right you know i'm really worried about this and we could talk to each other in that way so it's not like you're sitting there completely on your own yeah. But a lot of the time, because the decisions are yours. Mm. You know, the decision is as to everything, whether you allow a piece of evidence in or out, you know, what documentation you require in a case, um, whether people are complying with the rules, whether you're going to stop something happening or say that someone's not doing it properly or whatever, all the decisions. I think that's the first thing when I became a judge when I was sitting as a part-time judge. You suddenly realise, gosh, I'm the one who's got to make the decision. I know it sounds ridiculous because it's obvious, isn't it? Looking at me, I'm the one who's got to make a decision about this. So you're not making submissions anymore to persuade somebody else. You have to make the decision. And your decisions, obviously, are um, amenable to appeal. So that if I did something and I refused to let the defence call a piece of evidence and I'd got that wrong, then quite rightly, they can go to the Court of Appeal and the conviction would be quashed. So you, if everything is is subject to appeal yeah. as well everything, all of our decisions are, that there'll be somebody above potentially looking down at us so everything has to be reasoned 
everything you say, you don't have to, it's a very small decision, go on and on for hours, but everything we say is subject to review and, um, and we have to reason out why we do come to the decisions that we, we make. Yeah, I think I recently, uh, I, on a work experience, I read one of the um, documents with the judges' decisions on a case and they're so detailed and like each point is completely explained why and how they reached it. Yeah. So, <laughs> um, on a slightly different note, do you ever feel, particularly in the, uh, working in the criminal law speciality, that it's possible to get too attached to cases? No, I don't think I've been attached to cases. There have been cases that that worry you more than others, but I don't think I've been attached to the to the point where um, you know I, I feel I would be unprofessional. But that's not to say that cases don't have an impact on you. Yeah. So um, you know, sometimes I could be sitting watching some CCTV, for example, in a murder case, yeah. and yeah. you will see the person who died walking into a restaurant, walking down the street, whatever. And it's really quite strange knowing that yeah. that's possibly the last time they were alive, that something's gonna happen to them and they're doing something so normal. You know, sometimes something like that hits you. It doesn't paralyze you, it doesn't mean you're involved in the case, but yeah. of course it, it hits you. You know, I, I, I tried a case a couple of years ago where a mother had drowned her three-year-old daughter in the bath. And this little girl was beautiful, you know, it was yeah. just, I mean, tragic on every level. Yeah. There was um, a case I tried when I was a circuit judge at Reading, where ultimately, um, I'll make on to talk about it a little later, a chap fell out of a window in a, a third floor window um, and was killed. And I used to go past that building every day on the way to work. And there wasn't a day I went past, I didn't think of that chap. Yeah. So. Yes, there are things that impact on you and you think, gosh, this is horrid and, and awful, the rest of it. But I don't think it's made me emotionally attached to the case. I'm still able to stand back and to think about it in that sort of legal way. But I don't think I'd be human if yeah. something impacts you. It was interesting, Heather Hallett, who was the, uh, Lady Justice Hallett, was the Vice President of the Court of Appeal Criminal Division. And she, when she was a high court judge, uh, tried the, it was a 7-7 bombings inquest. And just the sadness of it sometimes, she said that she had to kind of dig her nails into her, the palm of her hand yeah. to stop herself tearing up when people were talking about people they'd lost. So we're not, we're not immune to, to feeling, but we, could still do our job if that makes sense no that was that was perfectly explained it's very still human but um <laughs> <laughs> professional thank you very much um and on the note of cases do you have a case that was particularly found particularly interesting i think i found them all interesting for different well not all some can be a bit dull i suppose but um i i think really the two things I can think one actually was a, when I was a practitioner I prosecuted John Warboys so I prosecuted the tax black taxi driver who was um, spinning a yarn to young women largely young professional women that would get in the back of his cab late at night and the one who would say I've just won the lottery and have all this money and say I've just won the lottery and I've got no one to celebrate would you like a glass of champagne 
and largely these sensible women sometimes had had a bit to drink would say no I don't think I would thank you very much and he was very downtrodden and kind of had a good way of persuading them that, that, that he had no one to share this with and so normally sensible women would accept a drink and he'd put a sedative in the drink and then there was a clear inference that he would sexually assault them yeah but because of the, the drugs that were used these women would wake up sometimes at home having no idea where they got there and no idea what had happened to them so in terms of prosecuting the case it was quite difficult because there was no memory there was nothing that showed that what had happened you could be as suspicious as you liked there was there were some occasions when some of these women would start to come round, and then we could establish some sexual assault but aside from that, it was it was really quite difficult to piecing that case together. And that was a really interesting case because it was interesting to see how, as I say, he chose a particular type. A lot of them were students or there was a solicitor, a marketing executive. You know, we're not talking about women who didn't have a brain. Um, and he would choose and target those women. Quite why it, and everything else is beyond me. But it was a very interesting case to try and put it together as to what we could particularly established and that that was a three-month trial um, and that was very interesting I thought that to, to prosecute that case was interesting and um, but again as a judge I suppose that one where the guy came out of the window because that was a case in fact where um, the two defendants were very young Somalian heritage lads each had come to this country having I think experienced some quite awful things um, in Somalia they came by other European countries with their mother and they'd got they were getting into trouble they were basically coming to Reading arriving when most people were leaving in order to rob drunk people that was what they would come to do and um, on this particular occasion they had robbed some people within Reading and then targeted this chap because they saw him take some money out of a cash point so they began to follow him and you can see the through the CCTV, which is often not as clear as you would think. It's not perfectly obvious it's them, but the, the police did a good job at showing the people they thought was them that, that followed, started to follow this guy on his walk home. And then he came off the main road, I think, because he wanted to go to the loop, I suspect. Um, and he was followed by these two young men. And we know that he was robbed because one of them pleaded guilty to the robbery of him. But the next time you see him was at the back of these, these um, I think it was like a news agents in the bottom part of a three story house. And he was at the back of it, obviously injured, lots of blood on his head and very disorientated. And he finds his way in. He actually climbs over the gates into the backyard of this house and then goes up and up and up and up to the third floor and then tries to get out of the window of the third floor. And he got his um, foot caught up and fell to his death as it happened. So were these two lads responsible for his death? They were certainly responsible for robbing him. Yeah. But there was probably about a seven to eight minute gap between the robbery and when he fell out of the window. Mm -hmm. And he was charged, they were charged with manslaughter. So it's manslaughter, um, unlawful act manslaughter. So the un unlawful act was the robbery. And then you had to prove a causation. How was it he came out the window? Now, 
in a lot of these cases of people who, what we call escape cases mm. you and i might be walking down the road i attack you or go to attack you you go to avoid me and you're run over by a bus mm. that sort of thing so yeah. you're trying to escape my unlawful act okay. and then something happens which causes you to die then i could be guilty of your manslaughter if that's reasonably foreseeable that you would do that which it might be if I go to hit you, it's reasonably foreseeable you're going to step apart and then you'll run over by bus. Here we had that time gap and then this really weird behaviour of him going up the stairs. Um, and so the jury were left with manslaughter on the basis that, yes, it's reasonably foreseeable that somebody would try to escape. He didn't come back on the main road. He knew where he lived. He'd lived in Reading all his life. And so the only inference can be that he didn't want to go back on the main road in case he came across these people again. Mm. How he was injured could have been either a blunt force injury, someone hit him on the top of the head, or he was trying to escape, fell and hit his head. There was a church, there were some gravestones. Okay. Yeah. And then how he came out of... So, it, I mean, that was a, a legally really in, tragic, tragic case. He was a young father... You know dreadful case as i say there wasn't today i walked, didn't drive past there and 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 think about him but it was um it was a tricky legal case and difficult for the jury but they they were convicted of manslaughter wow that i mean that is very complicated case <laughs> no, it was complicated it's it's an issue of causation to what extent can you say can you be sure that the reason he died was because of the unlawful act and of course, the longer you've got between the two, the less easy it is if you're prosecuting to prove there's a causative link. Um, and the other way he could have been guilty of manslaughter is if he was completely disorientated. So what he was doing was because of his disorientation. But it was, yeah, it was legally complex um, and very interesting and very sad. Yes, no, that's very tragic. And, but yeah, not a case that... Um, I've never heard of the um, manslaughter, but because of a, like a causation of what you've done. Yeah, I know. Very interesting. It's a kind of escape because manslaughter usually is I punch somebody and they fall over and they hit their head on the ground and then they fall wrong and they die. Now, I don't intend to kill them. I don't have that intent. But my unlawful act has caused their death and it's reasonably foreseeable. This is complete, this is different. And, it, and like I say, the escape cases, you know, we have them also not just in manslaughter, but I don't know if someone suddenly tried to attack you in a car and you opened the door to escape and then you were hurt, yeah. then the person who tried to do that to you could be guilty of your, uh, um, your assault because there's a causative link. But it becomes more difficult, as I say, and as a, a tragic, tragic, yeah. but there we are. So yes, that was, I thought that was a very interesting case for me. Well, thank you very much. No, that was, that was a very interesting case. Um, this is something that actually our, our listeners um, are very interested in. We've had sort of questions about this quite a lot, but um, really interested to hear your perspective. Would you say that your experience um, in the career of law has been impacted by gender in any way? Yes, I think it has. Um, it was very different times when I started, but I, I can remember, and it would never, this would never happen now, but I can remember having an, um, a pupillage interview, and I went into this particular place. Um, it wasn't even to criminal law, I don't really know why I'd applied there, it was, I 
I was quite good at employment law and I was kind of toying with the idea of maybe going in that direction a little bit. Um, I remember going in and sitting down and at some point one of the questions I was asked was, well, if we offer you a place, what are we supposed to do when you have children? And I just, <laughs> so I thought, well, firstly, I, I hadn't really thought of having children and I didn't, didn't think it was much to do with them, but I wouldn't be thinking about it perhaps in the way that, that you would today. Mm. That was a question that would never have been asked yeah, of yes. any male candidate. That's the first thing. Mm. Um, I can also think that um, when I first started, so I was in pupillage mm. and there were two of us uh, we became very good friends so there was a chap and myself and what would happen is that you very you don't get work in your own name first because no one knows who you are yeah. so you tend to do what they call returns of somebody else so somebody's got two cases that have been fixed at the same time and they can't do both so you do a return that's how it, things start to work and if there was a return um, he would always get it first always it wouldn't matter what it was it would go to him and it wasn't until he took some time off in the summer mm. and I didn't that suddenly they the clerk had no choice but to give it to me and things started to get a bit better from there but there was absolutely no doubt about it that the work would go largely to him and my then clerk he was very old-fashioned I think he'd been a clerk since the war um, he really felt I think he'd opposed the anyone becoming a permanent a tenant in, in chambers that was female and I was the fourth woman in those chambers so yes I think th at that stage but uh, fortunately more, some people in chambers were more enlightened and things began to work out but I think also then in the type of work you would get so there was a real thought and again I think this is changing a bit there was a real thought that anything that required a bit of blood guts and guns had to go to a man Okay. Anything that was almost quasi-family work, that is child sexual abuse, for example, would go to a woman. And I used to find it extraordinary that I would be instructed to cross-examine children when I'd never had any. Yeah. And male colleagues who did have children would never be sent that sort of work, <laughs> so who might know how to talk to children. Okay. So it was there was definitely a kind of push. And if you wanted, I, mean, I actually... I say I enjoyed that sort of work. It is horrible, but I, I, I did enjoy working with vulnerable people. Mm. Um, but I know some of my female colleagues had to just say, no, I'm not, I'm not going to do that sort of work at all, because otherwise, and there's, there was a lot of it, that's how it was seen. The women in chambers did that, and the men did the murders. And when finally I started to get a few murder cases, and then when I was a Queen's Council, got murder cases defending, I used to say to my male colleagues, well, now I know why you've kept it under wraps. It's a doddle. There's no, there's no victim to cross-examine. You're not having to cross-examine a seven-year-old child or six seven-year-old children or whatever it is, which is much harder than, than your average murder case, to be honest with you. So, yeah, it was, it was quite, uh, quite interesting. But So, yes, I think there have been issues about gender. Um, but I don't feel that anything as I became more senior you know me taking silk me becoming Queen's Counsel me becoming a circuit judge me becoming a high court judge I don't think gender has had any any impact on that 
And I don't think it has any impact once you're a judge on the cases you try. You just try the cases that come into your list that day, you know, the way that the listing works within a, within a court. So as, as I've gone through, I think less so. Um, two stories I tell, uh, because I gave a talk, it was 100, women's in the, 100 years of women in the law two years ago. That I was up in Manchester and I'd been invited to an event because I was sitting at Manchester Crown Court and I gave a little talk and there were two stories I told them and they, they were years apart. When I was first a pupil and I said we used to get returns, yeah. I was sent to a magistrate's court to deal with um, a case that was going to be sent to the Crown Court. So it was just a procedural case mm. and I went through it and the, it was a social security fraud, benefit fraud. And so it was sent up to the Crown Court. So I came outside and I said to my client, right, you'll hear from, the, from your solicitors in due course about your date at the Crown Court, et cetera, et cetera, explaining it all to him. And I never forget him saying, so when I go to the Crown Court, he said, will I get John Smith, the barrister he thought he was going to get, but he didn't, he got me. Will I get John Smith or will he send his secretary again? I will never forget. <laughs> it's what he said to me. Ah. I think he's been labouring under a misapprehension, whatever his name is, and I had to kind of explain it. In fairness, he asked for me to represent him at the Crown Court. Yeah. And then much, much later, and actually I think worse, is was when I was in, as a High Court judge, I was on circuit, I won't say where, yeah. and the High Sheriff had invited myself and a colleague, so two High Court judges sitting, to go and see a concert. It was very nice, it was at his expense, you know. So we walked to the theatre, which we, we could get to for the court, and this high sheriff had not met either of us before, came downstairs, spoke to my male colleague, said, pleased to meet you, and turned to me and said, and you must be his clerk. Oh, God. And that couldn't have been, what, three years ago? Now, my colleague was, was mortified. My colleague nearly fell over. No, 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 no. This is Mr. Justice Kurtz. It's exactly not right. But it goes to show you that sometimes the way that you can be seen. If I'd been wearing my red and white fur robes and wig or whatever, you know, wouldn't have thought about it. And this guy had three daughters, all of whom were doing well at university. I just... It's crazy. There we go. So it's that's kind of societal attitudes about the way they look at you but yes I think my career has been impacted by gender I don't think it's you know I think you just have to get on with it yeah you know it's like everything else isn't it you just have to say well I'm entitled to be here that's your problem not mine and just kind of get on with it but I do think I think it's it's different now from the way it was all those years ago um, and I think there are more women coming to the bar, the real difficulty we've got is women staying at the bar um, because you're self-employed. It could be very difficult once you start to start a family and, and juggling all those things. But, you know, we're at least getting people coming through and, and I'm yeah. glad to say attitudes have changed. Thank you. That's uh, good to hear. <laughs> <laughs> um, and then for a final question, um, what's one thing you would recommend for a student wanting to follow your career path? I think one thing's really hard. Um, so I'm going to say a few. I think you won't be surprised to hear me say this because you've hear, heard me speak before. Believe in yourself. Don't, don't write yourself off before you start. It's very easy in a world where people think they have to be perfect to think that um, 
I'm not going to be able to get into this or I'm not going to be able to do this or I'm going to be looked down on or whatever it is. Just believe in yourself. Um, stick at it because you have to have a degree of resilience going into the independent bar um, you know just getting into it can be difficult these days uh, and just stick at it and once you're there it's a question of hard work and preparation just making sure that you're doing your best on any individual day you, you don't have to be perfect you should when you first start aim to be broadly competent you know but things will change and you'll get better as you go on and I think that one of the things that girls and women can be very uh, can affect them more is is ter in terms of self-criticism and I remember one piece of advice that was given to me by a Queen's Council when I was quite young because you will do things wrong you will go into court and ask a question that turns out to be the stupidest question because you'll think oh, I've made matters worse but one of the things that he said to me is yes self-criticism is all very well so long as it's constructive and not destructive learn from what you've done and where it went wrong because we all learn from our mistakes and we're going to make them all of us um, but don't destroy yourself you know that that idea when you go to bed of thinking oh my god I could kick myself that I've done that yeah all right have that emotion and then bin it yeah. and just think okay well I've learned something from that I'm not gonna do that again so it's it's that kind of self-belief you can need a degree of resilience um, it's not going to be easy all the time and but with hard work and preparation yeah sometimes a bit of luck of course yeah. that's always welcome it'll be it'll be amazing it's just I feel so lucky i look at other people who've had jobs you know in offices that they hate people go to work and they hate it and you can't live for two weeks holiday a year and i've i've just not felt that way and i've so i feel i've been truly blessed so that's that's all, all, what i would say mostly just just believe in you because there's absolutely no reason why you can't do it <laughs> absolutely none thank you very much that's some very amazing inspirational advice. I'm sure I'll really appreciate that.